Welcome back to the Rogue Retro Smackdown Review here on the Rogue Opinions podcast and feed. I am your host, Scott McLeod, and welcoming you to the Go Home episode for Judgment Day 2000. The end is truly here, if that's even applicable to Judgment Day. I know it's also an Armageddon thing. The countdown to the 60-minute Ironman match is upon us just days to go, or weeks, depending on when we get around to recording the Judgment Day review, knowing our schedules. And by our schedules, I mean myself and my ever-present co-host, the rambling Sam Preston. I don't know which one is more believable, the ever-present or the rambling. I feel like both of those are kind of applicable and kind of not, because this might be me rambling, but it's whilst I'm present. But what if I'm not present and I'm rambling? And what if when I'm not rambling, I'm always present? So yeah, Sam's clearly dropped some acid before this recording. (laughs) (laughs) I've come in hungry, so therefore it's just like, right, let's go in and probably sound like I'm off my fucking nut. So... (laughs) Oh, I spoke to them uh, before we recorded so that look, we've got a lot to, to get into here Raw is really picking up here in the last couple of weeks especially this past week on Raw so let's not muck about obviously May 18th so it's mad but first we need to go back a few days to May 15th to Monday Night Raw and talk about a big development that's happened I didn't realise you know watching this back that it's happened solely on like they waited till like, the go home Raw to do this because Obviously, the big Ironman match, uh, Judgment Day, a lot of people will know about it, and the fact that it had a very particular special guest referee. I didn't realise it waited till this stage in the build to introduce the special guest referee as the most ineffectual authority figure in the history of the WWF. I will not argue against anyone else. Literally, he is the most worst authority figure they probably ever had. Commissioner Shawn Michaels returns to the WWF to open Monday Night Raw. Not something I think a lot of people would expect because by this point he's all but retired from active competition. So yeah, always start off your go home or off. By the way, here's Shawn Michaels, the guy you haven't seen since he kicked, kicked the rock in the face at the start of SmackDown. So we basically have the attitude version of general manager Micah Damley, um, which means I'm hoping that during his refereeing, he makes some sort of retort to not Jeff Harvey, but instead of saying like, one, two, three, four. He could be more like one, two, Tlaz, Katla, and just like see um, see how many different languages and different mistakes Shawn Michaels can do as a referee because he has such a great history of being so reliable. I know because like people forget like the whole story of the last few months is like they've been the regime taking over. First you had Triple H and Stephanie, and then James was coming in and Vincent seemed like they were all struggling for further. Then they all took over together and made everyone's life miserable. And people forget he's still around. Like Sean's still around. Technically, has the title of commissioner. That he's been able to overthrow decisions made by Vince in the past. Done at several points in 1999, but he's just buggered off. You know, kind of running and name only his wrestling school, just so that we can say that Sean trained Sean Michaels, even though like so they can say years later that Sean trained Daniel Bryan, even though he technically didn't. And he wrestled at a show that his school put on, which was technically his official retirement match at Star 2000 where he also won the promotions title and then immediately vacated it so by all accounts Sean's wrestled his final match at this point uh, how differently things will turn out in a couple of years but Sean comes out and despite the fact he is the commissioner so he should be able to show up whenever he wants Jim Ross just says the line which will be repeated in the Judgment Day video package 
Shawn Michaels has returned. But the question is, why? Well, because he's a commissioner. He's, he's, he's showing up for work for the first time in six months. That's but, why he's so surprised. Like, nobody expects him to show up for work unless he throws a hissy fit, which, hmm, that might be applicable to this Monday Night War. Shawn Michaels, the wrestling equivalent in 2000 of the Spanish Inquisition, because nobody expects either of them. <laughs> Yeah, except one of those that you're actually willing to have come back again if they stay the same. And I'm not going to guess which one. And one of them probably wouldn't pop up after years of retirement in Saudi Arabia. Anyway. Mm. <laughs> so he basically talks about how he's basically been sleeping on his responsibilities as commissioner and basically blames himself for everything that's happened with the regime and DX. Everything, well, you're kind of putting that lightly there, Sean. Like, nice to get off your ass and admit that you, you've been slacking. And he officially resigns as commissioner of the WWF. And this brings out Vincent Mann all happy and smiling. You know, I've talked several times on my podcast, Scott and Paul's Rambling Podcast, when we've been looking at the new Jenny or through the new In Your House shows and just how, with every passing show, how big, much bigger Vince's boner for Shawn Michaels gets during that time period. So it's no wonder he comes out with a big smile on his face for Shawn Michaels. And then he welcomes them to the to the show and he said, well, you, Heartbreak Kid isn't of need of invitation, but I don't recall inviting you to the arena tonight. And and Sean said to him, well, actually, your wife, Linda, invited me to the, to the show tonight. And that, that causes Vince's facial expressions to really change because, like, Linda, Linda is undermining me again. Uh, and he officially announces that he is the official WRF spokesperson, which is probably the worst decision Linda McMahon ever made, you know, apart from one other political one. He also insists on being the special guest referee for the Iron Man match at Judgment Day, saying that nobody knows more about this type of match than him. Basically, trying to remind people. Remember, I know you might not have been around then, but I was in that Iron Man match. I won it. It's a big deal. Please be invested in our Iron Man match. Yeah, um, it's it's uh it's a little bit depressing that Shawn Michaels has to drop a hint to why he's so perfect for it. I was involved once. I was a wrestler. I mattered, etc. Although, to be fair, I think probably at this point, wrestlers like uh, Rick Rude and Sting in WCW had more experience with Iron Man matches than he ever did. But obviously, they're, they're less likely to come through the forbidden door. Um, uh, having Shawn Michaels come in with his history of special guest refereeing, because it's not just his actions against The Rock. You, even have, you can even look back as far as like 97 when he was refereeing the Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels, uh, no, uh, first Bret Hart, and cost The Undertaker the WWF title. Whenever Shawn Michaels is involved as a special guest referee, trouble always follows, which just makes this even more enticing when you think, wow, this troublemaker on the decision of Linda McMahon in a wonderful undermining moment for Vince McMahon, and he sells it perfectly, um, this can obviously only go well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, nothing, nothing's going to go wrong. I mean, Linda's maybe the, the you know, sane McMahon. She's one to make all the conscious decisions and you know, setting things right. But I have no idea what the hell she was thinking about. This, but I'm assuming this title, this role, will be title only, much like he's, if he's not more so than his commissioner role. But I thought it's very interesting because on this matter and on Raw, they choose consciously to have no interaction with Sean and the actual competitors in the Iron Man match. So he's got the back and forth here with Vince and. He shows them during the commercial break that he left in a limo just as the DX were pulling up and 
Road Dogg's the only one that actually sees him through the window leaving. So you get his road going, was that Sean? And uh, Triple H said, Sean wouldn't be here. And then later on, obviously, finds out that Sean was here and that he's going to be the referee. So, yeah, no interaction between Sean or Rock and Triple H. But, you know, they do make a note during Raw that obviously they both know the implications of him being involved in the Iron Man match because Rock officially accepts Triple H's challenge for the match. And then also brings up the fact that, you know, HBK, last time he was the referee, he cost me the WF title, which I'm pretty sure, like, I don't think I've, it's really fully been talked about, you no, know, and like, you know, the dirt sheets and shit like that since then. But I'm pretty sure that at one point they wanted to follow up on that with uh, a Rock Shawn Michaels match uh, after him getting cost of on SmackDown. But The Rock famously didn't want to wrestle Shawn Michaels because supposedly uh, he was somebody that, for whatever reason, when he came in as Rocky Maivia, Sean and Hunter didn't uh, take that much of a liking to him. So so much so that Bret Hart even tried to warn him about those two. And so obviously he wasn't really... Rock wasn't interested in the backstage politics of the stage Shawn Michaels because Sean's still a couple of years away from like cleaning himself up. An interesting element of that is that um, I've not only heard like you about the Shawn Michaels Triple H sort of trying to hide, uh, hold Rocky down, but I'm pretty sure I even read once that uh, there was a special event going on where Rock's grandmother was putting on a show and Shawn Michaels was there and was really disrespectful to the Rock's grandmother, uh, who's, who he's obviously always been very close to ever, uh, ever since he was a child. Uh, that always seemed to be the story I heard was the thing that made him go, nah, I'm not dealing with this guy whatsoever because of the way he treated uh his nan, the wife of High Chief Peter Maivia. I don't know how many of these stories are true, but I think it unfortunately says something about the sort of reputation that Shawn Michaels had at the time that everyone can believe it. Yeah. Uh, I've even heard at one point that they tried to even float the idea of, I don't know, status of a grain of salt, but at one point they may have floated the idea of Shawn Michaels versus The Rock at WrestleMania 21. Because obviously The Rock at that point was you know, starting his Hollywood career, but he was coming back for like a one-off every so often. And so they floated that idea, but then The Rock's contract expired and then they never renewed it. You know, allegedly due to some bitterness within the company about The Rock basically choosing Hollywood over the company. But i trying to think, Shawn Michaels, I don't think anybody has had more potential happening. Like I don't think anyone's had more proposed WrestleMania matches that never actually happened than Shawn Michaels. I think he was when he wrestled Bret Hart, WrestleMania 13, clearly didn't want to lose, so he went to look for his smile. This one with The Rock. He was supposed to wrestle Eddie Guerrero at Mania 22. Eddie died. And then supposedly he was meant to come back for a match with Triple H at WrestleMania X7. But then a few weeks before WrestleMania X7, he hit his low point and passed out in Vince's office and was promptly fired. Which is around that time he started to actually clean himself up, so... John Michaels, not only Mr. WrestleMania, but also Mr. Neely WrestleMania as well. Absolutely. I think he even heard that there was one where one year he was supposed to be wrestling JBL and they ended up doing it at No Way Out instead. So at WrestleMania, we got to have The Undertaker versus Shawn Michaels the first time. And it's so fascinating to think about how history could have changed so differently by just one decision. I'm pretty sure I heard that. Um, round about WrestleMania 23, I think it was, um, you had Shawn Michaels battling John Cena in the main event, 
when in actual fact, actual fact, it was meant to be a rematch between Triple H and John Cena, and Shawn Michaels was brought in last minute as a replacement due to an injury to Triple H. So some of the better matches he's had at WrestleMania have occurred almost despite themselves, and some of the matches that could have been absolute brilliant we didn't get to see so i would i would almost love to see a real documentary on the sort of matches and near misses that Shawn michaels had at wrestlemania mm-hmm. over history yeah you always think like how someone else change history like where would austin be if he didn't if brett went on to fight sean and not him at wrestlemania 13 obviously the rumors of him fighting the rock at wrestlemania 21 obviously and instead we got an excellent match, probably the best match of that show of Kurt versus Kurt Angle versus Shawn Michaels. So, you know, there's there's always that as well. But yeah, you're saying about some of these matches. I think there was even a point where Macho Man uh, back in like 94, like tried to picture a feud between him and Shawn that would go like a year. So eventually at one point they'd probably have a WrestleMania match. Uh, but Vince still said no one wanted Macho Man to be a commentator. So yes, the many missed opportunities of Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania, that's a story, another story for another day, but back to Monday Night Raw in the year 2000. So they had the same with The Rocks, Triple H and Stephanie, basically accepting the Iron Man match and saying that he'll he officially accepts it. And they set up, this ends up leading to them setting up Rock versus, The Rock versus Chris Benoit in a submission match. And then they keep harping on, oh, The Rock, how's The Rock going to fare a submission match? I don't think The Rock knows any submissions. I can't name one submission that The Rock knows. Something in, in my head, I'm thinking, well, the sharpshooter, but then, like, you know, he does it so bad, I don't even think I'd count the sharpshooter as a submission The Rock knows. But, you know, that created intrigue, obviously, getting The Rock prepared, because they, Triple H, claimed that Rock didn't have the endurance for an Iron Man match, so this is why they put him against Benoit, also against Benoit practice for his submission match against Chris Jericho at Judgment Day. So... Benoit gets a cheap shot in early on in that match when Triple H comes out to distract distract The Rock. And then, speaking of Jericho, The Rock pulls out Jericho's submission 135, an arm bar. <laughs> At one point, uh, Stephanie tries to distract The Ref while Rock has Benoit on a figure four, which allows Triple H to grab Chris Benoit's arm and pull him closer to the ropes. Uh, the Rock hits him with a rock bomb, and then The Rock gets caught in a cross face, and Vince does the old Bret Hart, speaking of Sean and Bret, uh, Vince calls for the bell screwing the rock or the rock screw the rock. Uh, it's leads to a bit of a heel beat down. Uh, Vince tries to leave uh, after the rock fence, fence them off, but Jer- Chris Jericho comes in to block his exit. Walks in a wall to Jericho to Triple H while the rock gets a rock bottom on Chris Benoit, then leads to DX coming out, which also leads to a scuffle with the Dudley Boys. And it, it ultimately ends with a shot that's replayed on, on SmackDown, but Rock ends Raw standing tall on his return after going to film The Mummy Returns and puts Triple H through a table. It's, it's, it's really refreshing to be able to have it every now and again. As we see a lot of the times over the last couple of weeks, Triple H and the McMahon-Helmsley faction have been getting on top of the actual feud and The Rock has been battling against all the odds. And every now and again that they have these moments where The Rock actually succeeds and get and gets a moment such as putting Triple H through a table really helps keep the audience invested because you can only go so long seeing a hero continuously be beaten down and Triple um, H especially with his like easily hateable st- style to him works perfectly for this and 
The Rock is one of the most impressive wrestlers, I would say, in terms of being able to. He doesn't lose any. He doesn't actually lose anything when he loses a match. He can still look good in defeat, and he's a Teflon sort of character in that he can lose several times due to these interferences or attacks, etc. And you still believe in him. Um, the closest I can think of nowadays would probably be someone like Adam Cole, who can have it. He could lose two, three major matches in a row. And yet when he's challenging for a title, you believe he could actually still win it because of this Teflon ability to bounce back from anywhere. So quite happy with the way that they would end that episode of war in order to get the audience figure, right. I need to see SmackDown and see if like everything's still on the rock side, or are we going to have it that the tables turn pun intended? Yeah, definitely. I was like, uh, Rock goes over here, and then you think maybe the heels will go over in this matter, which gives you an idea of like, oh, like who's going to stand tall rather than the usual kind of thing that we the trap we we fell into in years since of like whoever stands tall and they go home isn't winning at the pay per view. But we talk about some of the other key players, obviously that were involved that that smaller than what they were doing on Raw. So the Dudleys, they beat Head Cheese in a match that made me go, really, Head Cheese are still a thing. It was a very clunky spot where Blackman was being set up for the 3D, but clearly was standing in the wrong position, and the Dillies had to awkwardly move around so they could perfectly hit the move. Uh, there was a big thing with DX afterwards, which leads to Tory doing a dive off the top to the outside and putting Bubba through a table. And after the commercial break, he cuts to Bubba just rocking the corner, eyes wide, and it's some sort of trance. And Devon trying to snap him out of it, like, snap out of it, Bubba. We'll get to her back, and she will know the name of the Dudleys. And all the while, Bubba's all wide-eyed. Uh, I mentioned Jericho. He got cost a match by Benoit against Hardcore Holly. Against Hardcore Holly, of all people. And they had a, a Hardcore Rules match. Uh, Benoit came in, hit him with a chair, which allowed Hardcore to get the win. Uh, Rikishi, as retaliation for almost stink-facing Stephanie on the previous week's SmackDown, she recruited Kurt Angle to take care of him. And he said, I'm frankly insulted that Fusey thinks that kind of behaviour of rubbing your butt in people's faces is acceptable. And he said some things about Samoa, which I even put in my notes, is this racist? I don't know. Dexter seems to think it is. Uh, but but Angle has a decent match. They also involved in Christian and Pat Parson, you know, getting involved. Also helped build into the two cool V. Uh, Edge and Christian and Kurt Angle match on uh, at Judgment Day. Also, Shane McMahon uh, comes out after being at the Big Show, kind of stalking around the parking lot the whole night, and then changes the ones out to the ring and says, hey, Big Show, I'm right here. So really, open fight against the stereotype that Big Show is a dumb giant. Uh, and responds to the chance of Shane's a pussy by saying, like, you know what, I am, because that's, I am like a cat, because I have cat-like reflexes. I'm, I'm like a young jungle cat. And he starts doing his dance around the ring. And then he challenges the Big Show, he says, why don't we make our match at Judgment Day a no-DQ match? And then he books Big Show in a handicap match against TNA, uh, which they they had the numbers advanced, so they were able to, you know, TNA were competent briefly before Big Show starts fighting back. He gets a splash in the corner and a, uh, there's a, what was it, he punches somebody, a chair in somebody's face. I'm mostly uh, confused at the concept that uh, TNA were actually able to look dangerous. <laughs> Yeah, uh, Gerald Briscoe gets involved. He gets getting sacrificed, and Gerald Briscoe takes a choke slam at like in his fifties. And then Shane tries to get away after causing the DQ. 
but Shul catches up to him on the on the ramp and throws him in a moment that will be recapped on this match and throws him against the Titan Tron. He smacks off the WF.com logo on the Tron. So nice to see Shane actually get some comeuppance as well. So yeah, you know, a different story probably when we talk about it on SmackDown, but yeah, at least two members of the McMahon Helmsley regime got some comeuppance on Raw. Oh, it makes such a wonderful change. Enjoy this, but when while you can. <laughs> Absolutely. So that then takes us into the the confusing woody woo woody woos of the SmackDown intro. And as we're ready to find out what happened on SmackDown. And it opens, of course, with uh McMahon Helmsley regime promo to talk about what's gonna come up later on. Let's Basically, it's an in-ring booking meeting because they recap what happened on Raw and then subsequently book matches that naturally go on uh, to follow on from the fallout of the previous show. So their in-ring booking meeting consists of definitely seeing the Chris Jericho were the great ever, you know, picking her name in his mouth when he has to now face Harker Holly and Chris Burr won a tag team match and pick a challenge and pick a tag team partner of his choosing. And Shane uh, plays up his his attack from the big show, the previous role, saying, I may not be 100%, but I will, I'm a man of my word, and I will order my challenge against the big show. Uh, and people start chanting, she's a pussy again. And he says, like, you know what? I'm starting to feel like I'm getting a sick of You know what? I want to face the big show tonight. And they're going to be like, what? And everybody else in the race is like, are you sure you want to do that? But we all know it's not going to be quite that simple with Shane McMahon. Triple H recaps the rock putting him through a table. He talks a bit again about the Iron match, and then somewhat tellingly, he talks about how this won't go to Sunday, so instantly it's also different from the previous Iron Man match, which did go to Sunday. And he did say that D- he emphasised that DQs and counts will count as falls, even though I'm sure they, they distinguished that in the previous Iron Man match. I did just feel like all this talk of no sudden death and all the things that can count as a fall really is uh, almost, especially if you've watched the, you actually know the outcome of this match, really like foreshadowing what is to come. But that would be <clears throat> completely out of character for the McMahon Helmsley faction to really lay it on fit of, thick of what the future is going to hold. I mean, usually they're much more subtle than that, aren't they? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, but on the other hand, they've got the strategy of, I know people who use subtlety and those people are cowards. So like, then Vince gets handed the microphone and he talks about Sean and he kind of almost seemingly threatens him, kind of like how Triple H did on Rossi. You know, you should you, you need to call this match the way it should be called, which you know gets basically says basically you know do your pal a favor or else you know I'm I'm with the boss's daughter now. He talks about how little chance The Rock has for the Iron Man match. He says The Rock's gonna need to make a deal with the devil. And I am heard on good authority that he's not taking appointments right now, which I think was a good line from Vince McMahon, not being basically being the evil businessman that he is. And then <clears throat> a weird reaction from the crowd when they announced this bizarre, almost Russo-esque you know, match stipulation for later on. He goes, "The Rock is going to there's going to be a match later on tonight. Going to be a handicap match. Hey, some interest from the crowd. A handicap tables match. Oh, a bit more interesting. Handicap." Table lumberjack match, and there's a bit more noise in the crowd. But then they then they boo when they find out it's the Rock being put in a handicap match against the Dudley's. Like, no, no, you don't get a cheer the weirdness of the stipulation, and then boo when you don't like who's being put in it. You know, play the rules either you cheer or you boo. 
I like to imagine that when the writers were planning this one, <clears throat> they had like a darts board full of all these different matches that it could be. And they said, right, Vince, here's three darts. Pick out what the match is going to be. And he just like throws them randomly. And he ends up with a lumberjack handicap tables match, which means that if he had thrown it differently, we could have ended up with the Rock versus Duddy Boys in a brown panty street fight match. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not something anyone anyone wants wants to see. No, nobody ever. Not even those stringent, you know, Dudleys or Rock fans want to see that kind of match. But yeah, so we have at least three matches booked for later on. Uh, so now it's just as well these guys came out. Otherwise, this has been a much shorter episode of SmackDown. And we have uh, something I've been looking forward to. And as soon as I saw this happen, it came up on the network. I was very much looking forward to it. Crash Holly comes into the APA's uh, office and he's he's tired of you know everyone coming after him the 24/7 rule. He can't even get any sleep. I just need an hour of nap. Should mention the uh, that he got pinned by one of Godfather's hoes on the previous Raw. He was credited as hoe on the official title history, and Lillian Garcia even goes, "Your winner and new hardcore champion." One of Godfather's hoes. <laughs> <laughs> and people incorrectly assume that this is Victoria that was the same hole who won the title. That is not the case. It's a different hole. It's just a fact that obviously Victoria would debut later in the year as a hole that they assume that she was the one that won the title. These poor hoes are just so interchangeable. I know. Well, they're in the pimping game and that ain't easy. We all know that. That is very true. Um, I'm going to say straight off, I remember this segment when it originally came out. I remember watching this episode. I say live. For me, it was live. It was actually Saturday morning, so it wasn't live. But as far as I knew, it was. Um, And this is actually one of the segments over the entire episode that made me love the hardcore division 24-7 rule. And I'm really excited to see whether or not it still holds up or whether I'm going to end up disappointed by the um, harsh sword of nostalgia. It's an interesting way to phrase it. But I, I knew where this was ultimately leading to, but I did not realise that throughout SmackDown there would be this that many, as many segments as we actually get to get us there. So the road was much longer than I thought it was. So we'll see at the end of the show if it was worth it or not. So Crash, no a big wad of money. He says, how much for an hour's protection in classic hustle movie where Bradshaw goes, yeah, this is about cover. Just takes the money off him. And so he just lies as if he's stuck at, stuck at for the, he just lies down the floor with a, using his bag as a pillow like a child at an airport waiting for a flight and Crash goes to sleep in the APA's office, which then leads us into our first match of the evening, one of three matches that basically previews uh, a big six-man tag that we've got coming at Judgment Day because how else can we set up for a tag match unless we have the competitors wrestle each other in singles matches? But honestly, this screams the year 2000, honestly. Kurt Angle takes on Scotty Too Hotty. Another noteworthy name because Scotty Too Hotty now went back out on the indie scene. And uh, as soon as I hear he's anywhere close to me for the show because he says he wants to come to the UK, I'm definitely why I go see Scotty Too Hotty. Are you going to dress up as Grandmaster Sexy or Rikishi? No, I can't pull that off. What, Sexy or Rikishi? Either. 
I mean, I put on some weight, but my ass is nothing like Rikishi's. <laughs> and plus, just I'm not like wearing three, a do-rag. You just need three or four of you to wear it all at once and just uh, all represent one ass cheek. <laughs> we all just buy, like, uh, we buy an entire row of seats. Like, sorry, this row is reserved for all of us in our giant Rikishi tribute ass. Yes, this is our Fatu section. Please back away. This is this is just for us. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I would actually pay to see that. Now I want to see Scotty coming out and see you and your brother all jumping up, turning around, and just displaying yourself as a big giant ass. And he's just going to be like, I thought I moved on from this. It turns out, no, I haven't. I would never he, leave this behind. He, he hasn't moved on this, and he knows he hasn't moved on from it. He put his own. He put the old fiery Scotty Hotty like two as a too cool like two as a logo for any of his teasing that he was going back in the end of season twenty twenty two. He knows what people want to see. So that's a question. Whenever you make your notes, do you put Scotty Too Hotty as T double O or the number two? Oh, I put the number two. Oh, I've been putting T double O. I feel like such a terrible fan. I need what to be better square. at this. You're such a total square, aren't you? I am a square. I am like a squared <laughs> wing. Anyway, but back to this match, which is like such a 2000 Smackdown match, and uh, we're all better forgetting to talk about it, because Triangle comes out, and of course he has some things to say negatively about Skydory, and he talks about, you know, I thought I'd seen all, all the wrestling moves there were, but I've never seen a move more stupid and more out of place in the world of wrestling than the worm. Like, that's not a licensed wrestling move. You couldn't do a worm in the Olympics. If your Olympic hero pulled out the worm in 96, the US, USA would have faced dead last below countries like Guam. I don't know a lot about Guam, but apparently it's an insult to finish below Guam, according to Kurt Angle. So I'll take his word for it. He's an Olympic hero. He has the experience and knowledge of uh, Olympic gold medalists. So if anyone's going to know what's embarrassing... It's our Olympic gold medalist. So, Thursday, I didn't officially get my stopwatch out for it, but Thursday, this match ends with, you know, you can count on one hand the minutes this match goes and have finger, plenty of fingers left over. But, well, it's also weird, and it also goes to show how giving a crying can be that he wins the match, but the offense is 90% Scotty too hot. Oh, I'd, I'd almost go so far as say 95, to be fair. I mean, you have at one point, you had like Scotty trying to pull Angle into the corner and he's just, Angle's just scrabbling around as if like, like it's the Undertaker kicking the crap out of him. And I think that may be one of the things that Angle would eventually in the future get a better balance of in that instead of having it that he gave too much to an opponent who may not necessarily need it, Instead, he was able to get that right balance of making his opponent look good, but not making them look like anybody can beat him. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is one of the moments where backstage was said, Oi, you're giving too much offense to your opponent. You need to be looking better than that. But then again, it does fit quite well into his um, heelish ways. And I have to admit, I actually enjoyed this match a lot more than I thought I would. Um, like, like you said, it wasn't a very long match, but it didn't, it didn't outstay its welcome, which especially surprised me considering that it started off with a 15 minute promo from the Van Helmsley faction. And I'm already thinking, dear Lord, please kill me. Um, 
and instead we're able to cut into this next match, which I don't know about you. I thought the worm got an even bigger pop than it would normally would because of Angle's attention to it beforehand, which was a really clever psychological uh, psychological edge to add to it. So there were two elements I really love about one, the fact that the worm was given this like real good attention in order to build it up and make it look good and a big sort of like challenge to everyone. And at the same time, it was a relatively solid match that didn't outstay its welcome. And I'm like, Oh, wrestling. I remember this. This is fantastic. So yeah, I actually probably enjoyed this much more than you would have expected. Yeah. I think like I agree with you totally with your point about, you know, the worm and the reaction I got because I, I I was even watching this match even after the promo I was like right you know, after that if they don't have Scott actually even attempt the worm like you can have Angle like break up and get the heat for you know because like when people would you know stop Scott from fully completing the worm I would get the booze when that would be louder than the tears of him actually hitting it so like you need to have him at least attempt to hit the worm and then he did and then obviously the reaction was all the bigger. And yeah, like you said, it's weird how how much often Square gets in by does the the old the old like Bret Hart Owen kind of spot the victory roll countered and Angle managed to get the roll up one. And I think it does fit into his character in that he'll celebrate just any victory like he's just won the world title or another gold medal, no matter who it's against or how little offense he's going, like because to him he just goes that's just another one for him and it just justifies that he is he's crying going, he's the best, no matter what and he wouldn't hear you're crazy, like yeah, but you, you, he, he gave you like ninety five percent of the offense. Like, don't care, I still won. I'm the greatest. I'm Kurt Angle. Ooh. And that's why he's intelligent, integral, and intense. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, I don't really know what else to comment other than what exactly I've written down here. I just put uh, crash, crash. All snores in the EPA's office. Actually, I've autocorrected. I now notice autocorrected to say he snores in the APA's audience. <laughs> well, to be fair, the audience is usually snoring at anything to do with the APA. Um, so I can believe all of that. Um, to be fair, Crash Holly, like you said, is very similar to an adorable child in an airport just snoring his little head off. So it's kind of like just coming back and just being like, oh, isn't that adorable? I'll go back to Scott just for a second before we move on to the next match. Is the worm the best like move that never wins a match? Because it's it's always given such you know like pomp and circumstances. Always you know put also the emphasis on the crowd get involved in it. They're already starting to chat along with the W O R M. But but it's one of those moves that no matter how many times is it or like how many times the person goes for it, they always attempt it. But it's never won a match. So I think it might be. The best move to never win a match. <laughs> what I want now is that when you go to see Scotty Tuati perform, he wins it, uh, wins his match with the worm, and just have you stand up and go, no, 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 that completely <laughs> subverts what the worm is, and just have you go into like a big rant about it. And Scotty's just going to be looking like, who the fuck is this fool? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'd pop honestly because you know, like, like Martin Kirby when he was in WCPW, he always he always went for that elbow along the the rope, middle rope. Never hit it. First time he hit it, he won a world title. 
So, you know, I think, you know, it'd be a hell of a pop if he actually won a match with it. And maybe there's a match he has in WWE that we don't know about because maybe it was on a C show somewhere that we don't know about that he somehow won a match with the worm. So, you know, if anyone out there has the free time that we don't have to go and find that match and let us know about it, then more power to you. I will even have it. I will force Scott to review the match with you so that therefore we can truly see that it's happened. And then he can recap it on the next episode so that I don't have to watch it as usual. Of course, as usual, I'm doing all the work. Yeah. Now, a match that in WCW equally would not have been given as much time, but they probably would have had more of a match than here because we have Perry Saturn taking on Dean Malenko. And we have China as guest ring announcer. You know, the person... Second least qualified to be a ring announcer after Deborah. See our Backlash 2000 review for my thoughts on Deborah as a ring announcer. <laughs> and then says that the, she claims that the Judgment Day Triple Threat match is off and that now the winner of this match will face Eddie Judgment Day in a one-on-one match for the European title. He changes his Perry Saturn as a man who can hunt birds and squirrels at the same time. And then just in case you didn't get it, she she moves her eyes and with fingers next to her eyes in opposite directions basically. I get it? His eyes are funny. And then introduces Dean Blanco as the light, light, light heavyweight champion. Try to stay awake for Mr. Personality, <laughs> Dean Malenko. Uh, and Dean Malenko has a, like, what the fuck face as he's coming out and China's just giving him this introduction. And then she also gives a very flattering introduction for Eddie Guerrero, who just so happens to be the special guest referee for this match. Of course, on an episode all about how we're going to have a special guest referee in the main event of our next pay-per-view, of course, part of the preview is we would have a special guest referee in a match. Mm. Yeah. Thoughts? How would you grade Shayna as a, as a ring announcer? Oh, probably the same as I would uh, grade the cat as a wrestler. Um, I don't need to see it. I don't want to hear it. And it's really not working for me. <laughs> Now, you talk about people who have voices that don't match how the person looks. China is up there, you know, when she has like a more higher, I know she's a woman, but she has a more higher pitched voice that somehow manages to lack any sort of character or emotion in it, you know, and it's, you know, acting like in these ring announcements that gets you starring roles in shows like Third Rock for the Sun. So, you know, more power to you. <laughs> Anyhow, and instantly you know that this match is not going to really feature anything proper wrestling. It's going to be Eddie basically trying to fuck with Eddie and Dean. Uh, get, try to fuck with Perry and Dean as they try to have some sort of a match which the crowd don't give a shit about. There is a series of cool roll-ups. Uh, Saturn gets a cheap shot and Eddie does do fast counts at one point. Uh, it, Dean Malenko goes for the cool move on Saturn but gets shoved to the outside and then while Eddie's trying to get uh, Perry Saturn out of the corner as he's unloading shots on Dean, he gets shoved. So he then, Lengo then uses the European title, which the commentators incorrectly say, oh, he's using the light heavyweight title. Now you can see the green on the back of the belt. It's the European title. It's a much better looking of the two belts right now since they got rid of the red strap of the light heavyweight title and replaced it with the basic bitch black strap. Anyway, I've already made my thoughts clear about that on other podcasts. Then Eddie hits Dean with the title and then trying to close that draw. So, ah, well, I guess there will be a, a triple threat match at Judgment Day. Now, I've seen a similar match to this recently because I've also recently recorded a show for you, Star about St. Valentine's Day Massacre 99, which features this kind of thing with a special guest referee 
try and fuck over both competitors in a match where it was Billy Gunn being the special guest referee uh, special guest referee for for Paris for Val Venus versus Ken Shamrock for the IC title. Now, any, this match was what it was on SmackDown. If you want to see a much worse example of how this match could go, what I implore you to not seek out the St. Valentine's Day Massacre match, as it's 15 and a half minutes of my life, I'm never getting fucking back. Oh, dear. I think it, it, it says something if, like, the other match that you watched was even worse, considering that the... It, this is a very ironic match to some degrees, uh, considering it begins with China lamenting uh, the lack of charisma that ca- that some of the wrestlers have when the most interesting individual in this match is the referee. Um, <laughs> because Eddie Guerrero is just like the fucking god. Um, it, it, there's also some little distraction moments, which is very frustrating to me. I'm sure it won't surprise you to hear that Jerry Lawler was already ignoring me uh, it uh, annoyed me because he was ignoring Michael Cole and was trying to focus on Perry Saturn's eyes. Um, and I'm just like, that, that's not really the point of the match here, Jerry. You're supposed to be talking about the title, not whether or not one of them has a lazy eye. And then getting more annoyed when he's calling Michael Cole a net nerd and a geek for going on WWE com, which you'd never fucking get away with nowadays. If any of them try suggested that I'm pretty sure they'd be canned by the next commercial. Um, so there's that element. And also the fact that it's not a net nerd thing when it's part of your fucking job, Jerry, but to be fair, it's not really that surprising that it started the best part of this match for me. I, I would say there's two things. One, um, Michael Cole tries suggesting that there's rumours Shawn Michaels may be jealous of Triple H's fame, which is the funniest shit I've heard all day long, and it's probably definitely a line suggested by Triple H. <laughs> um, and then it's the intelligence of Eddie Guerrero that I especially love in this match. I mean, it doesn't help that Saturn and Malenko end up looking like the dumbest fuckers in the world by actually going through with the match when you think that one of them were the time said, hey, Maybe we should keep ourselves like from getting injured or hurt and just beat the crap out of these two. No, instead they actually wrestle and Eddie ends up looking like a fucking genius in comparison. Um, let's be honest. This is not a match. It's a segment. It's completely a segment, but mm-hmm. it's not a bad segment and it achieves its job, which is that for the second match in a row, we have something that's building up to the actual pay-per-view. And on a go-home show, that's what you're wanting. So even though there are issues with it, it achieves what it sets out to do. And you probably can't ask for much more than that with a throwaway match like this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it does seem weird that they would want a wrestle match. You know, their their whole story is the the dissolution of the, the radicals and as much as Barry and Dean like, don't like Eddie because of his association with China, they don't like each other now either. So, why do they then just turn around and go, we know where this is going to go, and just start beating the shit out of uh, Eddie and China. Like, just to go to show how stupid they actually are now, uh, and basically how little the WWF really cares about either of them because they've already realised yeah, Eddie and Chris Benoit, they're there. They are to like, standards of this group, you two, whatever. Uh, but it is building to a triple threat, which I'm looking forward to checking out. She mentioned also that this stems from Eddie and Jaya losing a tag team match on Raw to Perry and Dean. So 
does some like come up ins for Freddie, you know, getting one over on these two guys heading into his, his European title defence. I mean, obviously, it's obvious what was going to happen, obviously. It was obvious that it was going to happen that he was trying to get one over on them before the Magic Judgment Day. And if you had just any amount of intelligence, you could figure that out for yourself. And hopefully you didn't have to rely on the, you know, the word of Michael Cole. He's like, wait a minute, King. I think Eddie Guerrero was trying to get one up on his opponents before his match at Judgment Day. And I'm like, Jesus, Michael, get with the fucking program, son. There are moments where I feel mildly sorry for Michael Cole. Because can you imagine having to spend every day at your job trying to make yourself look as stupid as possible to sell to the stupidest fuckers on the planet. And then there's also times where he doesn't help himself, such as like saying shit like, my, sure, Michael's maybe jealous of Triple H. So sometimes I'm really sorry for Michael Cole that he's had to spend at this point. It must be 25 fucking years of his life shoveling the same shit and basically making himself look like the biggest idiot in the world. But then... He also doesn't help himself that when he does do stupid things, he makes it really fucking stupid. He can't even sell it to some degree. You just sit there going, wow, you actually just asked that out loud. <laughs> it's really a Booker T moment. Like, just tell me he did not just say that. Yeah, somebody who grew up, you know, watching maybe call like the voice of SmackDown. You know, I've kind of got some fond memories of him, so I do try and defend him if I can. Because, you know, I think there are points where, like, oh, well, he's better than... Uh, you give people give him credit for. He's actually had some good calls over the years when he's been able to just do something naturally, not have it, you know, over script or shoved in his ear. But then he does shit like this, and you're thinking, oh god, Michael, like, why are you like this? Like, like that friend that you have. Like, you always have these friends who, you know, you don't like other people going criticizing them or calling them stupid, but then they do something or say something like, what? Why are you the way you are? Why do you make it so hard to be your friend? Why do you do this? Why are you this person? And I agree, every single one of us out there has a friend like that. And to those of you out there right now who are saying, I don't have a friend like that, congratulations. You are that friend. I hate to break it to you. I hate to upset you. Unfortunately, you might be the friend who says the stupid shit that everyone's like, why do you make it so difficult? Um, And I agree. I agree completely with you as well when it comes to Michael Cole, because... I really, truly believe that the period where he and Taz were on SmackDown together, 2002 to 2004 specifically, I would legitimately say they were probably the best announced team in the business at the time because they had such a freedom to what they were doing. They had a great chemistry together that made it enjoyable to actually listen to them they didn't um they weren't like resting on their laurels like uh jerry the king lawler and jim ross were on war and they weren't too over the top like mike Tanay and don west were where everything was the greatest thing ever and i will even say that if you look at times like i would say eddie guerrero winning the ww championship i legitimately believe michael cole is almost as vital to that moment due to the way he sells it and the emotion that he brings into it was almost like Jim Ross level, I would say at his best. And I feel that if Michael Cole had been allowed to have more moments like that, um, as opposed to this shit where he goes like, Oh, I've heard supposedly backstage. This person doesn't like this person. What do you think King? Yeah. It's just, 
it's unfortunate that when someone has the ability to actually be a lot better than you would think, they've only really been able to, to display it in probably like 8% of their actual overall career. And that's where I feel sorry for Michael Cole because the expectation isn't there anymore because he is a shill, unfortunately. And the times where he is fantastic were a long time ago and only for a brief period of time. Yeah, I mean, like, I remember in like recent years with NXT, like, especially when Maro and Nigel were there, everyone was like, well, why, this is so much better than like, the big ball on the main roster, not realizing that Michael's the one who produces the commentary for NXT. So he's got stuff there that he can't get out on main roster WWE, so he's basically passing it on to the people who do have like the freedom uh, to do so. And like the UK title term, and that's where a lot of people still haven't realized, huh, Michael Cole actually can be quite good because they seem to forget that. And like, I was talking about like it's Valentine's Day Massacre in '99, and on that show we talk about the the Rock Mankind feud. And as much as some people would probably have liked to have heard a JR call and also Mick Foley first like Big Tail, I actually think it wouldn't be the same without Michael Cole because he has that great line saying, "Mankind's achieved his dream and the dream of everybody else who's also been told that you can't do it." And I feel, I feel like it means so much coming from you know from Michael Cole eh, in in that moment, but. No, enough about Michael. Enough, aren't well, I was going to say enough about Michael, but go back to your point about the lady. Yeah, I don't. Like, who cares? Like when you, when King hears Michael Columbia going on WF.com, like yeah, but it's only your own company's website. But it's not the first time this has happened. Uh, but there've been times where he even says the names of moves, and dear law, like how do you know that? Why the hell do you know? Only an idiot would know that. And you, one of the things he said that is when uh, Michael Cole was actually giving you the names of. The Mean Street Posse finishing moves and the one time they got to actually have finishing moves in a match, which, to be fair, I think maybe would be right for criticism there because Mean Street Posse are not characters who should be allowed to have finishing moves. I'm pretty sure that the Mean Street Posse were on SmackDown nowadays, um, the video games, they wouldn't have a finisher as an option. They would literally just be like, um, take a 10 minute draw or something like that. I. I played as the Mean Street Posse on SmackDown. I could not tell you for the life of me what their finishes are. Even on, even like under, under Circle of Death or something like that, I'll be like, I have no idea whatsoever. I don't know what Joey Abs is, but uh, Rodney does a weirdly impressive like blockbuster called The High Society. And Pete Geth does some weird thing, which also involves him putting his hands over his opponent's face, which is apparently called The Gas Mask. <laughs> so... Can't imagine what an incredibly imaginative finisher, you know, Joey Abbas has. But like, I see them as like Rosa Mendes because there was that clip going around from Rosa Mendes on Told Evas when somebody asked her, "What's your finishing move?" And I don't have one. I've never won a match. <laughs> Fair play, Rosa. That's very self-deprecating of yourself. So <laughs> I get it. So like we've, we've gone down a weird rabbit hole. Let's move on to a match that. Seems to be better than it probably would look on paper, where we have Grandmaster Sexy taking on Christian. Uh, yeah, Christian also jumped Grandmaster during his like entrance, and uh, I also think out of the three took cool the like, Team Egg matches here, this is the match that gets the most time, and it was a match that actually surprised me the most. I mean, I know how good Christian is, but I think because he effectively is being annoying that people don't realise that you know. Brian Christopher, the guy behind the Grandmaster Sexy gimmick, is actually a decent worker. Grandmaster Sexy is an all right wrestler. 
he can do what's required. I think it's more his personality makes him very grating. So whenever, like, I, I have to admit, I actually have it that whenever he cackles, I feel like my spine tingle. Um, he makes me shudder uh, because of like how f- annoying it is. And yet, if he just wrestled, he probably, I probably wouldn't have mind him so much. I mean, he actually even does a really good springboard cross body in this match. Um, and it just like, I, I just question some his characteristics. And then also, like la- like last time when I was saying about how much of an idiot I thought Grandmaster Sexy is, he really doesn't help himself in this match because he hits a sit-out powerbomb, which leaves you in a pinning position. And then he goes out of his way to roll out of that position to then cover Christian, which loses in time, which means that Christian can kick out. And so every time I watch a Grandmaster Sexay match, I inevitably seem to end up writing the words Sexay is an imbecile. Well, nobody ever said that Grandmaster Sexay was the brains of the operation uh, in Tokyo, so I was never going to argue against you with that one. Uh, I mean, you know about like, the personality of Frank Christopher. I mean, you know about the personality of Frank Christopher. I mean, Scotty Too Hotty uh, in an interview with Cold Holly even talked about give some interesting insights into you know his relationship with Brian Christopher so go get that out if you get the chance but yeah a decent idea yeah, that you got did it was impressive the way he caught Christian in that power bomb but yeah the idea of him rolling out to to get rolling out to, to put cover him normally just look stupid he does get sent into his steel set at one point it always looks weird whenever grandma says he busted that skull Christian finale because like whether it's him or Jericho in 2001, anybody who not the miss hitting that move, it just doesn't feel right. But as much as an idiot, yeah, he somehow manages to get a get a roll up with the tights because I think Christian was trying to use the tights, so Grant the sexy, you know, gets him back for it, and Grant the sexy gets the win. So in the yeah, the team Eck versus Two Cool War, it's currently one all. It's one all, but in actuality, Team Eck is winning because it turns out Christian has magic skills because he is the only person who, when being Irish ripped into the steel steps, was able to stop himself through gravity. <laughs> so therefore, he is a magician, and he wins. <laughs> he wins in spirit. Uh, backstage in the APA's office, that whole returns uh, with a referee. Basically, inspect, she expects to, you know, just pin Crash all, even though she tries to kind of bribe uh, AP Bradshaw in a moment of integrity, which is awkward, which is very fine with him. Basically, says, like, no, we were paid to do a job, so nothing you can say or do will we'll stop us from doing it. Get the hell out of here, basically. That's a summation. He said it louder in a big Texan voice. Yeah, oh god, I, I, I do love the idea of um, Bradshaw somehow being so convinced by money that he will turn down the opportunity of a godfather at all. Um, but it's the sort of randomness you expect in a hardcore division. And it's these little moments building up that I kind of love. So I'm, I'm not going to lie. I liked it. I liked it. So Maybe you just didn't want any idea of like sharing the one hole with, with Farouk because <laughs> on the off chance that, you know, I might put him off if Farouk at the end shouts damn, which I hope he does. <laughs> it's like most people have like um, a, Come face. He just has a um, a come taunt, which is 
damn! As best as he can. And that, and that's when you know, uh, it's clean-up time on aisle three. <laughs> I imagine that it's a bit, it's a bit of things. Remember GBO used to do a thing before he delivered a power bomb where you pretend to put a cigarette out on somebody? I imagine he does that to a woman before he finishes. That's how he signals to her, like, wait, time's up, even though it's only been 30 seconds. 30 seconds, but that will be 10 victories to make me WWE champion. And that's all that matters. <laughs> and a moment I did not expect to see, and something that a segment again screams like Vince Russo wrote it. So somebody was clearly on the phone to wherever WCW were at this point to get Russo's advice here. But Val Venus comes out, who I'd forgotten existed in this period of time. And he comes out, and Val Wolski's got some things to say about how he's been held down the last two months by the regime, and he basically says that this time last year I was the Intercontinental Champion. You are, you won, you won, actually you won the champion this time last year, you won it in February at St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and again, one of the most boring matches I have ever watched. Please don't watch it, it is horrible. I would take 20 more regime promos before I watch that match again. That's how boring it was. Between two very capable wrestlers, and yet they produce a match that is so boring. So boring. Have I got to emphasize that enough? I think the only way you can em- emphasize it enough is if I was to say to you that if you don't complete your Steve Blackman is better than Kane forfeit by the end of February, then you have to rewatch that match 20 times live. Honestly, I don't know. Getting it done by the end of February, like, I've long forgotten. I've long given up on that. You're not getting that article. I can give, I can make it some shit on a podcast at some point, but I'd rather do the match thing because at least it's something physical that I can all get occasionally tune out for and just put it on a loop. But physically putting words to paper about Blackman and Kane, my brain multiple times basically said to me like Scott, no, it just it, was, it held me back from saying like you were not physically, you're whatever capacity for my brain I can access would not allow me to write such an article. Okay, then let us announce that when we do our Judgment Day review, you shall also include your segment on why Steve Blackman is better than Kane. The challenge okay. is there. How many reasons? Do you know what? I think that since it's taking you so long, you're going to have to stretch to eight. Oh, for fuck's sake. I barely got two out when I was writing an article for him. <laughs> I need eight reasons. And eight different reasons. Ladies and gentlemen, the uh, Judgment Day pay-per-view has been de- indefinitely been delayed because God knows how long it's going to take me to come up with eight goddamn reasons why I couldn't even think of five. Anyway, we've been talking about this so long that we've almost forgotten about you know, Valvius, which is supposed to do how little of an impact this workshop promo, if you can call it that, was even happening. Because, like, yeah, he wins the IC title in, uh, on Valentine's Day in 1999. He loses it, like, a week or so before WrestleMania to the Road Dog. So he didn't have the most profound IC title reign, Val, so I don't know what you're really complaining about. He virtually disappeared when you won the European title, so you're not exactly a key player right now. He's like, oh... He's still doing his porno voice as well at the same time, so he's still somehow in gimmick. 
I think it was a joke to me made a pun somehow that he didn't even go for about the big Valvoki being held down because you know by this point he was running out of porn puns. But this he says he wants the winner of the IC title match on Raw after on the Raw after Judgment Day. And then Primbaugh comes down, he welcomes the challenge, and then they tease they're going to have it now. And like, how shit Balvina says, I even thought Benoit was a better promo in this segment than him. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I thought Benoit did a pretty solid uh, promo when he comes out. Um, I mean, I think the only question is going to be who was better out of Balvina and Hardcore Holly. Oh, hell. Well, Hardcore Holly, I'd still give it to. I still give it to Hardcore Holly, even though I don't like Hardcore Holly all that much. Jericho says that Ben was soon get too confident and uh, eventually he's going to run to a wall. A wall of Jericho. Uh-huh. See what he did there. And then Bob Holly comes like, no, I should get a title, sure. And I should win the title and then beat everybody. He didn't see those last two bits, but he was probably implied. And then Jericho just offhand goes, screw it. Val, well, you're out here. Why don't you be my tag team partner in this match? Which then leads you to believe, like, what would Jericho have done if Val just didn't have and did not have just walked out here and mentioned the IC title? Was he just going to go at it alone? Was he going to grab anybody he could find on the way to grill position? Michael Cole. He was going to grab Michael Cole. Obviously. <laughs> so, I like, I, I even put it in, in my notes. This, this, is, this is what I had. Oh, yay. Here comes Hardcore Holly saying he should challenge for the IC title on War, not Venus. With that in mind, Jericho decides he'll pick Venus as a tag team partner. Bracket, well, no shit. Bracket. And then, for whatever reason, the match starts off in the oddest combination because it's Hardcore Holly and Jericho fighting on the outside while Benoit fights Val Venus on the inside. Like, no, it's it's Jericho and Benoit that people care about. Neither of these two, so... Why is this happening in this weird order? One of those, one of these things is not like the other situations. It, it, I mean, to be fair, this whole segment—I'm not even going to call it a match. I'm going to call it a segment. From the moment that Val Venus comes out to the ending of this match, is a fucking abysmal piece of booking. Um, not helped by the ending. But I will go into my proper rant when you reveal what the ending is, because, oh, I have thoughts. I have thoughts. Of course you do. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> I don't have much on this match, really. All he does break up a pin at one point from Val Venus, so the idea that Val Venus got anywhere close to pinning the IT champion is weird. Uh, Jericho does walk in the wall of Jericho at one point. Parker Holly then just goes mental on people with chairs and even like attacks Benoit's legs. Like, he even attacks his own partner. Even Benoit with a potential injury going into the match at Judgment Day. And then later on, we see a random bit of Benoit uh, lying on a stretcher and screaming loudly while people try to attend to his leg. So this benefited nobody. Out of these four, none of them benefited. Parker Holly's not going to get a title shot. Val might get a title shot. I'll have to check out the Raw to Judgment Day, see what happens. Maybe when we get to the Judgment Day match, maybe they'll progress that with Jericho going after the leg. But in this moment right now, as we look at it, None of these four benefited. And Val, I could not give a fuck about your anger, about your booking. Fuck off. If Val thought he had bad booking before this match, this match was just a clusterfuck of bad decisions. So you got, you basically got it. So that you have four individuals cutting promos 
that take a total of seven minutes to set up the obvious thing, which is going to be that Val Venus is going to be Chris Jericho's partner. And then after that, you have a match that lasts, and I counted, 140 seconds. What a fucking joke. There was more dedication. There was like three times as much dedication to the promos beforehand than there is to the match itself, which becomes a waste of fucking time. Now, I like the idea of Val Venus wanting a title shot. It makes sense to me. But I don't understand why they didn't just have Hardcore Holly, Chris Benoit, and Chris Jericho come out for their match, then Val Venus appearing, saying... I will help you with the proviso that if you win at Judgment Day, I get a title shot. Boom. Done. Set up. Got Everyone's got a motivation going into this match. Hardcore Hardy wants to get a result so that he can have a title shot in the future. If Alvinus wins, he gets a title shot. If Jericho retains, Jericho and Benoit want to be able to set themselves up so that they're going to be on top at Judgment Day to attain the title. All of them have a good motivation in a quick amount of time straight into a match which is what the whole point of it is supposed to be. But instead, more time was focused on setting up the match that ended up lasting about as long as a heavy urine sample. This was stupidly booked. This was a disappointing decision. And it was you know, it was the first letdown of the show since the opening segment, which is really gutting because having started with the usual 15 minute of McMahon, Helmsley, Regime bullshit, this show up to this point had been doing very well at a break ne- breakneck speed and was very enjoyable and then this has taken it straight back to straight uh to square one again and even on top of that the achievement of the match doesn't make any sense because why have you got it that the heel is weakened before the pay-per-view that doesn't make sense you're not going to have the villain go in as the weaker of the two, because it doesn't make sense in that way. But instead, Chris Benoit is the one who's going to possibly, uh, it, to this degree, almost makes it look like he'll need surgery on his leg. And Chris Jericho is the one who's getting away with things. The booking is nonsensical and makes no sense. Nobody has actually gained anything out of it. There's not actually been any good of a match from it. It means that the booking from this uh, early on in the show, which dedicated about three, four minutes to Stephanie McMahon saying what was going to happen was pointless. The match was pointless. The promos were stupid. This was a waste of a segment time and four people's energies and efforts. And nothing was achieved apart from making all four of them look worse afterwards. I don't know I have to ask about this segment. Why did Hardcore Holly have to stand tall after attacking his own tag team partner? And what is the insistence every so often that we've been seeing on this show of Hardcore Holly having a segment and for some reason has to stand tall? Yet there's nothing for him. Like you're not building him up for anything. But why does Harper all have to get remain strong? This is this type of booking where he thinks he's stronger than he actually is. It makes him go, No, I actually win the title and I should beat everybody. Like, like what are you saying off? He had to get the last word in over Bulldog. He, he had to get the last word in over Angle a few months ago when they were tag partners. I remember there was a tag match or a raw where he randomly started beating everybody up at the end of it. Like what why are you making like Hardcore Holly, one of your strongest like upper mid card guys, when he should not be booked this way. Mm. You, you, it's the sort of it's the sort of thing that you could almost get away with, with 
if it was Steve Austin in his character having it that after a match, he just stone codes everyone um, and just like says, fuck you all. That makes sense with someone like that. Not with a perennial mid-carder who really is should be left behind. So the amount of effort given to keep him strong when it benefits nobody and in actual fact probably sets more people back because have making hardcore Holly look strong makes no sense at all. And especially if you look at some of the names you've just mentioned, Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, all three actual future stars of the business are being made to look weaker than someone who in the end will be remembered mostly, unfortunately for a couple of interesting hardcore matches, being a bit tough at times and being a backstage bully. Mm-hmm. I mean, the height of Harker Holly's career would be challenging Brock Lesnar for the title at Royal Rumble 2004, which I remember having on DVD and watching it and being too young to realise just how weird it was the idea of Harker Holly challenging for one of the two major titles at one of your big four pay per views. But that's a ways away, so I'm not going to dwell on it. But then we have a uh, 2000s pop culture insert here with uh, Gerald Briscoe being joined by Joe C, who all we get told about him is, a, oh, he rolls with Kid Ruff. And clearly I'm not happy enough to know who Josie is. But basically the insinuation here is that Gerald Briscoe thought Josie was a child and so tried to pretend that he wanted to meet the acolytes just so he could get into their office for some reason. So and then Gerald Briscoe's made to look like, no, 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 this is Josie, he rolls with Kid Ruff. So, and then the acolytes buggered off with Josie because they were like, well, Crash is ours up, so we don't need to protect him anymore. And Gerald Briscoe's been left there thinking, I was with it. Then they changed what it was. Not what's it is scary. And it'll happen to you. <laughs> uh, I um I was curious at like how old Josie was at the time, considering the fact the reference of him being a child. So I actually looked it up uh whilst I was watching the show and it turned out he was actually twenty-five at this time. But I also found out that unfortunately it turns out he would pass away in November of that year. So uh, all I'm all I'm going to say is I'm going to refrain from any major comments in relation to this segment. Out of respect, the only thing I'm going to say is that Josie swearing at Gerald Briscoe did make me laugh. <laughs> uh, oh, it's weird. This feels like the most out of place of all the hardcore title segments. I mean, you hear just had Josie come out on his own without Gerald Briscoe. And he's like, because he needed a reason for us like the APA to leave Crash just on his own, leaving Pronte until uh, they get pinned. But like, who, who, like, why did Joe uh, Briscoe need to be in with Josie? It almost seems like when he turns around and sees Crash there, that he wasn't intending to see him there. It was like completely by accident. He walks in and he goes, "Oh, look who's there!" And then you can see the gears turning in Mr. Briscoe's head. I actually realised, looking at my notes, I switched this around order-wise within that with a match. But, you know, I wanted to get this out of the way this segment because obviously it's the most pointless of all the, the Crash Holly segments. But go back to the Magic Guns before that. We have Edge and Christian taking on... We have Edge taking on Rikishi. Uh, and it's, he comes out with the rest of Team Eck. And then they do their classic five-second pose for the benefit of those with flash photography. 
Is this the first time we've seen it on SmackDown? Because I've seen it a few times on Raw, but is this the first five samples on SmackDown? Um, I think it is, actually, because I'm pretty sure that when I was watching, um, I actually I actually even put on there, we are introduced to the five-second pose. And <laughs> it, it is one of those where you feel you're watching a bit of history and instantly go, oh, yes, this is the moment. Um, so... We are now about to have what will probably be four to five months of five second poses, and I cannot fucking wait. <laughs> yeah, because like it seems like the first few weeks of uh, of their like solo turn here, like the major events were happening on Raw, and then I'd have to just tell you about it when we got to SmackDown because nothing was happening in regards to their, them turning. But it's something to do with like a, your local hockey team. Because uh, it's important that you remember that because they'll have a hockey mask for a later on spot. Where Rikishi kind of gets the, the, the better of Edge. You know, does a flash in the corner. He goes for a stink face, but Edge gets handed the hockey mask that they were using for the five-second pose. And then where is it? And then what, you get a beautiful moment of Rikishi doing the stink face. And then slowly feeling like it's an oddly shaped face with a lot more holes than there should be. Wait a minute. <laughs> And then he gets he tries to throw the hockey mask off. Obviously, all six men, you know, get in the ring. So big brawl, you know, no actual winner of this. And then two cool start doing their whole dance routine. And then Edge, Christian, and Angle all break up. And then they hit the music and they start doing their own dance, which is then broken up by the faces. So again, it's another one of those ones where it's a segment, not a match. But you can't say this wasn't entertaining. I I agree. Um, I think um, for the dance alone from Edge, Christian and Kurt Angle, that that alone is worth it. And character-wise, I actually really like the fact that the heels attack the faces because it makes sense for them to do so in order to try and get um, an advantage before the upcoming pay-per-view match. I thought the use of the hockey mask was fucking inspired. And... I, I was just like, Edge, you are a absolute genius, and this is why you're going to be a main event star, a, uh, a rated R superstar, if you will. Um, li- probably the only negative was that the finish was a bit underwhelming. But again, as I said, I understand why it would occur because Angle and Christian want to prevent Edge getting injured prior to Sunday's pay-per-view. Um, overall, I found it very harmless and enjoyable fun. Uh, I think the only thing really is the fact that this would have been the planned main event for the evening prior to the new announced matches. And if this was your main event, I don't think it would have sufficed. I mean, maybe it's a dark match main event because also the dance and send everybody home happy, minus all the interference, then maybe but yeah, the main event matter would have been it would have been shit basically. Uh and I really enjoyed it as well. Uh going into the next bit where we have Big Show coming out for his match with Shane, but then it turns out Shane's been a uh, Shane wasn't being entirely truthful with him as he announces that Big Show is gonna have to run the Shane McMahon gauntlet. Starting off with TNA, who easily gets the better of. Then out comes the boss man in Buchanan, who, you know, probably more of a challenge because he's still holding his own. And then out come DX as well to come out, out come DX to get the better of the big show. So he's still trying to fend off like six on one, 
Shane comes in with it using a chair, and then one of the funnier moments I think Shane's ever been involved in, where all all six guys help pick up Big Show. Shane stands on the chair and then pretends that he, well, he choke slams the Big Show. I he moves his hand to like he's been a choke slam, whereas everybody else is doing the effort to actually lift the Big Show, and then Shane McMahon pins the Big Show. Oh, it's just. Um, I might be about to surprise you, um, just as surprising almost as I was at the reveal that it was not a one-on-one match. It was actually a gauntlet match. Um, I thought that this match actually made really good sense from a storyline point of view. I thought that the fact it took seven men to take down Big Show actually showed how much of a threat Big Show can be that Shane McMahon needed all that help. And it was a really good example of being able to have it that the heel has the advantage prior to going into the pay-per-view. So from a storyline point of view, I feel like it makes complete sense. And I like their thinking behind it. And it would have you hoping that at the pay-per-view, Big Show would turn into a roaring rampage of revenge and would just like destroy every single fucker who got involved and break them into a million pieces. But unfortunately the commentary is a bit of a letdown in this situation because the focus should have been on the fact that uh, it should have been Michael Cole talking about how Shane McMahon needed so much help in order to have the slightest bit of chance, put over how dangerous the big show is that it requires seven people. But instead, Michael Cove is like talking about how the big show was duped into a gauntlet match. He wasn't fucking duped. He was put into a match that obviously turned out to be a gauntlet match. And I feel that that commentary ruins a lot of the good work actually told by the match because it changes the focus instead of having it that you're putting over your hero as like this big um, threat who the villain is terrified of. You make the hero, you make the hero come across as like the world's biggest idiot. And that I feel completely ruins both men to some degrees in this match. And it was really disappointing because if you had no commentary to this match, the effect that would have occurred and the work that was done would have really set up the, um, the pay-per-view very well. So overall, the story is good, but the commentary really lets it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I tuned out the commentary from most of this episode, I'm, like, with the exception of one or two moments like the annoying bits in the Eddie Guerrero like match the Eddie Guerrero refereed but yeah I do like the idea of like him using all these guys to help him choke so even then he nearly topples over because that chair is not enough to hold him up with the uh, the size of Big Show and the impact of Big Show hitting off the mat the big Shane nearly completely collapsed into this big pile with all these guys that are helping him it's like when a child likes to re- like you pretend that a child is Helping you open some, but really the adults doing all the work. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. I, I, you're you're right in that situation, and um, it does leave me sort of 
curious to see the match at the pay-per-view if I hadn't already seen the match when I was younger and knew where I was heading, basically what where I'd expect it to be heading and where it actually ends is two different things. And I think where I was expected head would have been quite good and where it actually heads is, well, we'll find out in the next episode. Mm-hmm. But now, we have to move on to pass away the moment. Everybody wants us to talk about this episode. That's Gerald Briscoe thinking into the APA office of the referee very, very quietly, even to the point even the commentators are whispering like I am right now, even though they're at a ringside and Crash Holly can't fucking hear what they're saying. But Gerald Briscoe quietly bits a finger on Spin Crash Holly. The referee goes very quietly and Gerald Briscoe quietly raises his hands and celebrates as he's declared the hardcore champion. But then the idiot referee kicks over a chair on the way out and that wakes up Crash Holly. <laughs> um, I'm going to start off by saying I love that Gerald Briscoe tells referee Jimmy Corderas to be very, very quiet. And then they still open the door to walk through it, which puts them more at risk of making noise. And then <laughs> having it even Jerry the King Lawler whispering along adds to the complete and utter madness and I thought it was fantastic I fucking loved it of course it then had to be ruined by what will happen in the ring I love the subdued like like, quiet celebration where he's raising his hands and I was like yeah and then uh Michael Cole sounds like he's doing his best not to piss himself laughing, especially when he says, "Yeah, Briscoe's a hardcore champion." Like you know, it sounds like he like he's playing. A, they're playing along with the joke here, but you can tell that Michael Cole especially wants to start laughing. <laughs> uh, it's sometimes nice to see the commentators actually go with the joke as well, like. <sighs> I think if they if they hadn't gone along with it, they would have really ruined the entire moment. Um, but by going along with it, it was so fucking good. Um, and then Crash Holly obviously going on the run, trying to get back his title. Um, Jimmy Cordero is basically the world's worst um, assistant in terms of getting anything. He would be a terrible thief, let's be honest, because he can't get through anything without making a sudden noise. I mean, the good thing is, is that, you know, it's not like there was a huge big fucking table to give it away that he should be careful where he's walking. Um, but, you know, it's it's fun up until that point. And even the moment with Pat Patson starting to get involved um, was that but relatively funny it's just that the ending is where you feel it's going to take the next step where unfortunately Vince takes it to a ridiculous stage but in the moment this I actually thought this was really good I loved it and it's just it, it's a really good through line story for the actual episode. It gives you like a little bit of humor in comparison to what you're watching. So I really, I, I, I can't complain about this. I cannot. I liked it too much. 
It's like oh, the highlight is obviously when he's first sneaked in, you know, like with the Elmer Fudd going, shh, be very quiet. I'm hunting hardcore titles. <laughs> <laughs> and then obviously Crash wakes up, immediately sees him with the hardcore title, chases him uh, into the ringside area where he starts just throwing weapons at the ring at, at Briscoe, where Briscoe's trying to fend off Crash, when really in reality, given his shoot wrestling background, I bet you, I bet you Briscoe could take Crash Hall. He could probably batter him. Uh, Quite sure then, that Briscoe but, could still do it nowadays, although it doesn't hurt that Crash Holly is dead. So I was going to say, uh, like it's a pretty, it's pretty one-sided nowadays. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like whenever people say, "Oh, you know your classic football team. Um, what do you think the score would be if they if they face like um, our modern team and the cla- and the old old guys like, oh, I think we'd win one nil, and the new guys like one nil." What makes you think that? And the old guy goes, well, two of us are dead and the other nine of us are in our 70s. <laughs> the only person tries to help, but uh, I don't even, I don't even probably know it down. I don't even want to talk about what happens. <laughs> oh, I just you, you, you care if I'm in? Pat Patterson decides to unveil his very own stink face with a pair of tidy whities that exhibit the stain of life upon it, which he is going to use to rub against Crash Holly's face. And thankfully, Crash, in a moment of inspiration, is able to save himself by basically thrusting something into a rear entry that shouldn't be thrusted into a rear entry unless asked for consent beforehand. Um, so that was ridiculous, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I, yep. I, I will say I love the next bit with the transition where you see Joe Briscoe running away <laughs> past Kevin Kelly. Um, that really tops it where it's just the, it's like the cherry on top of my cake of the hardcore division. <laughs> And really, this thing is not the weirdest thing that uh, Daryl Briscoe or Pat Ratson will be involved in regards to the hardcore to on 2000. But yeah, you want to ask Kevin Kelly as he's getting ready to interview The Rock. But they first thought to you a recap of what happened on Rock. And they kind of frame it as if to say they're, trying to, they're using this to remind you of who Shawn Michaels is. Because there's a chance that some people probably came in watching the WF after Shawn buggered off and don't even realise how, how big he actually is. So they, they throw the recap from Raw. And then The Rock has his interview with Kevin Kelly. Uh, he wants, basically warns each again not to screw him over. Tells Triple H to suck a monkey's balls. What, what his, and this is, there's a reason The Rock never worked with animals because he keeps saying, oh, go suck this animal's body apart, which puts a whole bit of scrutiny on his role as a, you know, a, basically a gorilla keeper in Rampage. But he also talks about all the matches he and Triple H have been through. And I could basically tell you anything he said he'd probably buy it, much like The Rock could have said anything here, and people would have bought into it. It's The Rock in 2000. It all culminates into an iffy smell, which everybody joins into, and everybody cheers. And there was my for choice. Uh, to be fair, The Rock could be out there uh, reciting the um, Yellow Pages, and you will probably do it in a way that would be more exciting than any Stephanie McMahon or China promo. Very much, yeah. Uh, so now we have the handicap uh, lumberjack table match. Rock be the Dudleys. 
basically got the usual suspects. Some of them we've seen earlier on TNA, DX, Bossman, uh, Buchanan, the kind of people all on the outside. Uh, so the Rock and Devon. So the Rock. Uh, Starts off on the back foot. The Dudleys are still tagging for some reason. Like there's lumberjacks and there's tables and everything. Like this match is not a traditional match. Why are you trying to follow any sort of traditional rules outside of the, the use of tables? Like don't tag in. You might as well not. Bubba gets randomly pulled to the outside. There's a bit with the him and the lumberjacks, especially there's one with the rock as well. Inside saying him to cheap shot some lumberjacks in order to get back in the ring. Uh, and he had the typical like, well, the lumberjacks are supposed to keep them in there. And why are they attacking the wrestlers? And like, it was during this match that I was thinking, like, why, why do we still even have lumberjack matches? Why did lumberjack matches last as long as they did and become such a trope? Where there is no lumberjack match that doesn't fall a very similar format to what we see here. Like, there are certain matches you can't do multiple versions of. You can only ever do the one version of a certain gimmick match. And the lumberjack match is the worst culprit of all of them. Why did they last as long as they did? Easy paychecks. I think it says everything when probably the best lumberjack match I can think of is a match that does not actually have lumberjacks, but treats it as if it is, which is The Rock versus Mankind in 99 for the WWF um, title, where you have the corporate mini- uh, corporation and DX all getting involved, and Stone Cold Steve Austin, and Mankind wins it. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think it was a lumberjack match from the very beginning, when in actual fact it wasn't. And that says everything about the lumberjack match, that the best version of it is a match that isn't even meant to be one, because it's such a stupid freaking choice of a match. And it's, it's always going to go the same way. And I agree also, why are Devon and Bubba Ray tagging in and out? those bunch of Egypts. <laughs> I know. And like, what would happen, by the way, like a handicap, I assume it's like, the case like we've seen occasionally with like Bob and D1, these two matches where like, what, you have to put both maybe through a table. So if D1 gets put through a table, he just got to be able to walk out because even if he, he's been through the table, if he even tried to roll out, I bet you the Lumberjacks probably still would have attacked him. Mm. Uh, and also, if, I think this match showed that it depends what level in the card you are against to show that determines how intelligent your book does. Because these guys basically do what Perry and Dean should have done earlier on and basically look at each other and go, fuck it. And they all went out to fight the Lumberjacks because they were like, screw this, everybody out, let's get everyone involved. Uh, Bill Buchanan accidentally hits the boss man with night stick during the ensuing brawl. Uh, the Dudley's brawl with Xbox and Road Dog helped build to their match. While The Rock fights with Triple H across the announce table. Uh, Tori gets involved, low blowing Bubba, which helps for an X factor through a table at one point. And then Road Dog Powerbombs D1 through a table. Brock manages to put Bill Buchanan against the table. Why does Bill Buchanan, of all people, out of all Lumberjacks, get the most spotlight here? Just randomly, like, oh, here's Bill Buchanan. Uh, and then The Rock, unfortunately, then put through a table by Triple H. We're using the Rock Bomb. He's always that goddamn move, getting some, some deadly payback from Monday Night Raw. So now the heels are stood tall in a very similar fashion to the way the faces did on Raw. And so Shane, DX, and Triple H have all stood tall to go out the close out the go home show of the death to the heels. Surely, surely they all get their come up and surely they wouldn't have all of these heels somehow still become out victorious at the pay-per-view. Surely they wouldn't do that. Uh, we'll have to find out next time at Judgment Day though. Dun dun dun. 
Uh, <laughs> an interesting side note um, is the fact that in celebrating the victory, you notice that you see Fince, Shane, Stephanie, Trish, and Tori all hiding on the ramp next to each other, which I found very fascinating considering the future battles between all of them apart from Tori. It's like a brief flash to the future, which I, I did actually um, quite like. Um, I love the fact that all three competitors end up getting attacked when outside the ring, so they literally just say, fuck it, and then intentionally attack the Lumberjacks. And exactly like you said, where it's good because it's the babyface admitting the odds are already against them, so just go for it. And I think it's, the, it's those sort of actions which... Um, may seem very small, but those are the actions that could be the difference between fans liking you and fans loving you. Because how do you, how does that wrestler deal with a situation where the odds are against them? And in this situation, technically, um, the faces fail. They do. They're at the end of it. They're all absolutely wiped out. But it's their determination and willingness to try it and not being an idiot at the same time that means that afterwards the rock and the dully boys are still liked by the fans which is the is the very careful precision they have to play with when it comes to booking how a baby face should be now yes there is no result to the match but it's in a main event where that makes sense because the heels appear the faces against one another to weaken them. The faces refuse to go along with it and it ends with the heels standing tall. And as the last shot before going to the pay-per-view, I think that works perfectly as a main event. I don't mind that there's not an ending because it's about the story they're telling. So I actually thought that was really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It sets up nicely for Judgment Day, which I'll just read you a quick reminder of the card. It's gimmicks ahoy here with only six matches on the card, also because one of them is going to be an hour long. You've got the six man tag of Team X versus Too Cool. Uh, you've got Eddie Guerrero defending the European title against Team Lanco and Perry Saturn. you got Chris Benoit defending the Aircraft title on a semi match against Chris Jericho. You've got Big Show and Shane Man, a false count anywhere match. A tie team tables match between DX and the Dudleys, and then a 60 minute Ironman match for the WF title with Shawn Michaels as the guest referee, Triple H versus The Rock. That's a fucking pay per view there. It might show the quality of the WF in 2000, regardless of what some of the segments may have thought on the lead up to, or may have thought some of the segments lead up to this show. That's a hell of a card. I have to agree. Um, I would say that it would be the sort of card that you would definitely be like, I need to watch this, I need to buy the buy the pay-per-view for Sunday. And you should also be willing to say that if it was the sort of pay-per-view where every match was given the appropriate time and ability to work to their best, it could be a possible show of the year contender, which it's going. It's going to be fascinating to see how whether how well they do with that because they put themselves in a really good position where they have some fantastic matches prepared, and the only question is going to be can they hit it out of the ballpark? Mm-hmm. We'll have to find out next time. We are going to have a, a guest join us for uh, the next show, also given as a pay per view. Well, I think we had an idea of who we we're going to have, but we're going to, have to double check. So I won't say anything right now. 
But in terms of the go-home show, Sam, I'll go to you first for your rating of uh, two thumbs up, one thumb up, thumb in the middle, thumb down, or two thumbs down. Uh, or And also, what match or moment, if you had to pick one, would you uh, would you recommend people check out from this show? So the positives are that I thought the pacing of the show was a million times better than the previous week. Um, once we got past the 15-minute opening ball fest, it was smooth and almost perfectly paced. Um, I thought the storyline about Crash Hardy is a fun little in- interjection uh, of comedy throughout the show that also helped incorporate the APA's gimmick, what the hardcore division is worth, the elements of the Stooges, and it even made the Godfather's whole a worthwhile character. So I actually think that in terms of um, a one-off storyline that can benefit multiple members of the roster, it's a very good example of how the little things can really matter. Um, I also love the fact that most of the matches mattered because they had something to do with either the six-man tag or the triple threat match at Judgment Day. So therefore, it feels important that you're watching these and it's setting up for what's going to happen at the following pay-per-view. The negatives for me is that the opening segment was the same as every other promo by the McMahon-Helmsley faction over the last few months. It doesn't garner heat for me now. It bores and frustrates me, and it means that the episode starts off cold and weak. I also thought the Benoit and Harko Holly versus Jericho and Farrell Venus match was infuriating. They basically went the long way round to making a match when everyone knows where it's going, and there are easier ways to set this match up. And it's also a little frustrating from my point of view that of the eight matches that occurred on the show, three were announced in the opening segment and one was a backstage segment. So technically only four matches, 50%, were originally booked on an episode of SmackDown. And for an old-time stickler like me who likes to have it where matches are announced beforehand etc as opposed to making it up on the night that's always going to be a slight bugbear for me my overall conclusion is i would actually i would give it a thumbs up um just one uh, i think the issues are very much a case of your mileage may vary so if you think that the opening segment is good it might be almost two stars for you um it's most of it is personal nitpicks and in terms of recommendation unless you love the hardcore division as much as i do um i would stick to the main event for what i would recommend fair enough uh, i was thinking about it like originally when when i watched them back to back i thought maybe this episode was a bit better than last week's one but even then i'm still gonna give it a thumb in the middle because while there is stuff that there is to enjoy, like a lot of the matches aren't even matches at all. There are segments, and while the ones that are good, you know, really help with either going really are entertaining. The ones that are bad, like the Valvinus stuff or the even the Eddie, the match that Eddie refereed, because I couldn't care less about because you knew you were just waiting for the moment where Eddie eventually, you know, made the other two look like idiots, and you know, obviously. the the main event of this. I don't like Lumberjack matches that are made perfectly clear, so. You know, while there was some entertaining stuff there, I was just waiting for the moment where everything fell apart. And when it did fall apart, at least was good. So I didn't like having to like dance about like Just get to the point that we all know is going to happen. So, like I said, it's one of those ones where when it did the stuff it was meant to, it did it very well. But then the segments that didn't work really stood it like a sore thumb and were not very enjoyable for me to really talk about or even watch. So I'm going to go with Sons of Metal, which even then is still better than some episodes we've talked about. And 
it's still it didn't lower my excitement in any way for uh, Judgment Day. Even actually, after talking about some of the matches, like the stuff to do with TMX versus Too Cool, I'm looking forward to certain matches more. So now, uh, in terms of what I recommend, I'd maybe just say the Edge Rikishi match because I think it's one of the more entertaining ones of the three matches because obviously you have that funny hockey. Is the five second pose, the hockey mask segment, and then yeah, Team X doing their own version of the two cool dance. So if you want to show how like how entertaining Edge, Christian, and Kurt were like early on in their their run in the WF, and also how over the act two cool could be, it's all there in one segment. Yeah, I think that's a very fair assessment to it. Um, I could, I can definitely understand your thoughts about going for in the middle. I think. The, like I said, it's, this is definitely one I think that because the hardcore division is so predominant in it for the majority of it and the, it's quite segment heavy, um, it probably really depends on how what people like. It's like I, I don't mind having the matches be more like segments if I feel it's actually achieving something. Whereas in previous weeks, it's been a case that matches have been like segments and you feel that nothing's really been achieved in there. Um, which I feel was one of the things that we're possibly, le- uh, hopefully, is learning. I definitely think that I'm very curious to see the next couple of SmackDown episodes because of the fact it's going to be building up to King of the Ring. And I feel that King of the Ring is something that will always make any random episode of Raw SmackDown suddenly have a little bit more prominence because of the tournament that's occurring. So I'm very much hoping that the relative momentum from this one and hopefully a really good judgment day means that we'll be hitting a couple really good episodes after this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. And I'm very interested to watch the build to King of the Ring because I have uh, fond memories of the King of the Ring 2000 pay-per-view, but uh, I'll delve more to when we get closer to it. I think I may have mentioned it on this podcast once before. And also, I was interested to know that Sean's now vacated his role as commissioner that the WF are going to have to get on whatever the 2000 equivalent of it is uh, and look for somebody new to be the WF commissioner. I don't know who possibly at this period of time could seamlessly fit into the role of authority figure and somehow bring charm and not be totally overbearing as an authority figure. I don't think there's anybody like that out there in the WF. No, I can't really think of anyone who would be able to have uh, garnered such love from the fans or a hardcore following or just to have that special touch that would put make other people look good um, without putting themselves forward. I mean, we, it would be curious to see whether or not we can find a commissioner good enough um, to replace Shawn Michaels and actually appear uh, m- more regularly than a full moon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see if we can find it right here. I will wait. It's a review. <laughs> but, you know, as we're preparing to go on a judgment day, we're going to, you know, build off into the podcast sunset. Uh, we're currently close to 500 podcasts. I don't know exactly where we are in, our, in the ranking now. I think we're in the 480s, like the four, late 480s in terms of like time recording. So depending on how what's scheduled to go out, what some of the other guys are doing, uh, and we have a good time. So there's a chance 
if we're too close to 500, this might not go out until we've the 500th pod to come out. But hopefully we can get it out before then. But definitely Judgment Day Pro will come out after the 500th pod's happened, and I hope you tune to that. But it's um, outside of Rogue Opinions in the, this podcast, uh, what else have you got going on? Oh, well, I've got a comedy show in Cardiff where I'm going to go see Reginald T. Hunter. Um, <laughs> I'm hoping to go see The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at the Theatre Royal. And I think it, it might also be quite great to go see maybe Uncharted in the cinema or see Spider-Man uh, No Way Home again because I fucking love that film. Um, yeah, because... I'm on annual leave, and that means I don't work anymore for two weeks, so I'm useless. But I'm pretty sure if anything comes up, you'll be the first to know, my friend. Well, it's that nice to have time off? <laughs> it's wonderful. I slept in until uh, yesterday. I slept in until 2 p.m. Fair enough. I did a similar thing the other week there when I had my weekend off. I was like the previous Sunday, the time recording I had. It was the first day I had I didn't have to either get up early or go to work or like have somewhere to be. So I slept in to like like yeah, like ten to two I think it was. And so you're like, well, this has been a long time since I slept in to that time in the afternoon. I say when I when I next get up before twelve o'clock, I'll drop you a message. <laughs> yes, please do. I'll be I'll be waiting with bated breath. But you know you can check out past episodes of Rogue Rich Smackdown Review uh, on the Rogue Opinions podcast feed on a good Android podcast site, whether it be Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, wherever you choose to get your podcasts from. Uh, you can find past episodes of this, past episodes of the Mash Show, other show Pod Nate Easy with Carl, uh, Naked Men podcast, so many other things. Uh, some AEW stuff me and Sam have done in the past with some other people. Uh, the 500 pod is coming soon. We're hoping to do some interesting uh, fantasy booking uh, for that 500th pod. I know Reese following 500 pod is going to do the 501st pod, which is going to be a special episode of his show, five, Room 501. Uh, also, what I've got going on, you can you can also follow the round on Rogue underscore Pines. Follow me at Scott McLeod 1996. Uh, find my other shows, Scott at SP Rambling. We've got some, some recently reviewed In Your House Mind Games, which has Sean Michaels taking on McFoley in the main event. Uh, we have an episode about Frazier coming out soon, and we're doing some stuff to the new generation and looking at underrated matches from that year in the next couple of weeks, so we've got some good stuff going on there. Follow us at SP Rambling on the same podcast and feed that you can find this show. Also, take out Eat Sleep So Plays Retreat because, uh, like I said, I was involved in one of the features recently, which was uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre. You can listen to me give out about that uh, Val Venus versus Ken Shamrock imagine just how shit it was oh, it was a bad show <laughs> anyway uh, but you know while I before I go to drive my sorrows I will thank you all for listening to this go home show for Judgment Day we look forward to bringing you a paper review that can hopefully stay as one fucking part Sam I have no idea what you're re- referring to um, just let's see how many hours this uh, pay-per-view ends up uh being on this podcast, I'm curious to see. Uh, if anyone wants to take bets on uh, three and a half hours, I will take you for that bet. Please don't, don't encourage this man's behaviour. Encourage me. Yeah. I am encourageable. Encourage me, goddammit. Encourage me. Stop trying to corrupt his young mind. He's still childlike. Anyway, let's, let's get out of here before... Eh? 
something else happens. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We'll see you all at Judgment Day for the Iron Man match. Goodbye. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, bye. I've got the looks that drives a cool while I've got the mood that really move I said chill up and down their spine. I'm just a sexy boy. I'm not your boy toy. I'm just a sexy boy. I'm not your boy toy. I make them hot, I make them shiver, their knees get weak, whenever I'm around, they see me walk, they hear me talk, I make them feel like they're all cloud nine, I'm just a sexy boy, I'm not your boy toy, I'm just a sexy boy. Not your boy toy.